The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. And he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Yourself? Doing well. Thanks for being here. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. Yep. Father, I would like to try and return to our email inbox tonight and uh, pick through some of the questions that we have received through <laughs> our website at uh, wcbohio.com. And uh, we have a couple questions, Father, regarding the question of uh, Holy Communion on the tongue versus Holy Communion in the hand. And so one viewer in particular writes in and uh, says, Father, can you explain where communion in the on the tongue comes from? I wish I knew how to answer Novus Ordo parishioners when they say that Christ never says we had to receive on the tongue. Some say it's prideful to refuse Holy Communion on the tongue instead of receiving our Lord in the hand. Thank you so much. I watch every week. God bless you. And Father, your answer to that question. Well, obviously, there, there's a multifaceted answer to that question. But uh, if somebody's saying Christ never commanded that we receive communion on the tongue, I'd like to see where he commanded that we receive communion in the hand. Our Lord never specified that, right? Um, the apostles obviously took from the tray and they communicated for themselves. But... Our Lord had ordained them. Take this, all of you, do this in commemoration of me, he told them. He ordained them priests. So that's the example we have at the, at the Last Supper. Right? Uh, it is a fact that communion in the hand was, uh, I, I would not only say not unknown, but the norm, probably. I mean, in the early centuries of the church, I don't think anybody disputes that. Okay? Um, but... Um, the fact is that in the course of the church's history in the Eastern Rite, um, we have the manner of giving uh, communion as they do, that the leavened bread dipped into the precious blood and then placed with the gold-covered spoon in the mouth. And So uh, again, we see an ancient practice in the church in the Eastern Rite. And, uh, I mean, even it goes back so far, even, even uh, to the Orthodox, even the, the Orthodox schismatics use that. So, you know, it can easily be traced back before the, uh, before the 11th century, before the 1000s, before the, the 900s. And so uh, it's a very ancient practice. In the uh, Western Church, of course, in the Latin Rite, we have the communion administered on the tongue with the unleavened bread. And uh, that practice, again, is very ancient. You know, one might say, well, that was not the original practice, but one doesn't have to say it was the original practice. Uh, the idea of archaeologism has been condemned in the church, that we have to sort of recreate the practices of the primitive church, is a canard used by the modernists to try to reinvent the church and abandon the, the traditions of the church and try to go back. <clears throat> they call it the church in search. They're trying to go back and, and search for the primitive original primitive practices in the church as though they're trying to recreate the original primitive conditions of the church, you know, 
But the, the Catholic Church itself has, in the course of time, condemned that idea and said, no, you know, that's, that's not the way we, the Church does things. <clears throat> that's the way the modernists claim to do things, but in fact, all they're doing is inventing new practices and say, let's invent new traditions, right? So uh, the, the fact that you know, the Church did this in the early days is really not an argument for doing it now. The fact is that the Church changed that and that's really the argument for what we're doing now, is the question is, why did the church change that? And uh, the church changed it when uh, she began to grow and, and uh, thrive and foster, you know, uh, and flourish throughout the, what at that time, the Roman Empire, and um, found a better way, a way that was more uh, secure, uh, more careful, I mean, even in the early days when hand communion was practiced, the faithful were warned to be careful of every, every particle of the host. They were explicitly warned not to let a single particle of the host escape them. <clears throat> now, you, you can imagine that that would be difficult. And um, even as the church is admonishing the faithful in receiving communion in their hands, as the church was admonishing them to exercise great caution and great reverence and great care, not to let a single particle of the host escape their, their care, right? Uh, and not be consumed. You understand in that the church is concerned about that. And if she found a way to make the reception of communion more secure, <clears throat> more reverent, and uh, to assure that particles of the host would not be lost, she would, she would use that. And in the course of time, you see that's exactly what she did. Uh, there are those who say, I, I understand, I've had a good authority, that the Catholic Encyclopedia article by Father Joseph Pohl, right, a Jesuit, Poland, of the Pohl Preuss um, team of theologians who wrote some very nice books on the sacraments and otherwise, and other subjects too, um, that the practice was pretty uh, common, the practice of hand communion was common uh, even in the West until about the ninth century, so the 800s. Again, um, if it was common until that late in the church's history, I guess it wouldn't be surprising. But I think you'd find, if you went back and studied a little bit more deeply and, and looked beyond that one line he gives in that article on the Holy Eucharist as a sacrament in the Catholic Encyclopedia, I think you'd find that the change was coming rather gradually, and was spreading possibly from Rome, but maybe from the East, too. <clears throat> um, you see, the Church was encountering, encountering heresies. The Church was encountering Eucharistic heresies. Uh, Berengarius is probably the most famous uh, of the heretics about the Holy Eucharist. Back about that time, about that time in the Church's history, and uh, the church had to define more clearly her belief in that real presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. And um, in the process of doing so also had to, had to uh, regulate um, with greater thoughtfulness, you know, the giving of Holy Communion. I mentioned some time ago an article, rather a, uh, a decree of the Sacred Congregation of Rites under St. Pius X, year 1910, and in that decree, uh, which was personally approved by Pope Pius X, by the way, so 
Um, it gave a bit of a history of the administration of Holy Communion to the faithful. Talked about the faithful receiving under both species, uh, under the appearance of bread, the, the species of bread, the species of wine. So receiving both the body uh, of our Lord, the blood of our Lord. And um, also the, uh, the uh, matter of uh, you know, the, the church's teaching that our Lord is entirely present under either species. Uh, Luther was the one who insisted in the 1500s that one had to receive both. Uh, but he was one of the very few of the so-called reformers who believed that Christ was really present there to begin at all. Uh, so he's the only one, one very few for reformers so-called. In fact, he might have been the only one because the other ones, the other is uh, Melanchthon and, uh, and so on, picked on him because he still held to some idea of a real presence in the Blessed Sacrament. To which Luther replied, well, the, the text of the scripture is too strong. I, I can't void it, mm. you know, as though he would try, but he couldn't. But he believed in impanation, uh, that Christ somehow moves into the bread and just sort of cohabitates with the bread, so to speak, uh, shares space with the bread, and the bread is more or less just a vehicle of Christ's coming, you know. But the church, the Catholic Church, believes in transubstantiation, that the bread just is no more, that, that it is simply the body of Christ that is there, under the appearances of bread and wine. A tremendous difference, okay. But the church has also taught, in conjunction with that, that Christ is entirely present, body and blood, soul and divinity, under both species. When the priest consecrates the host, he consecrates, he says, this is my body, he does. But now we have the glorified body of Christ. And just at the, at the Last Supper, our Lord took the host and said, for this is my body which shall be offered up for you. Remember at that time, his body and his blood were united. <clears throat> He had not been crucified, he had not died. And when he took the chalice and he consecrated the blood, his body and blood at that time were not separated. They were separated on the cross in death, but then reunited at the resurrection. And so we have the resurrected body and blood of Christ, the glorified body and blood of Christ, and they are, they are united. So when one receives either, one receives our Lord whole and entire. Right? Risen, glorified, living, true. Even as he's at the right hand of the Father. So, um, you know, when the church would give uh, communion under both species and allow the chalice to be drunk in the early days, and again, here's another example. The church found it to be a better way of allowing people to receive the precious blood by using the, the silver, but the gold-plated fistula, the straw, okay? That was a more efficient means of someone receiving the uh, precious blood. And therefore, as more efficient, it provided more caution and, and more carefulness in receiving. And the church saw that this is what we must do, though, out of reverence for the Blessed Sacrament. <clears throat> so in, in the course of time, I mean, the church can discover new and better ways mm -hmm. to administer the uh, Holy Communion, as she did. Uh, in having in the West the priest now universally giving the host and the tongue. And um, even in the tradi traditional papal mass under St. Pius X and Leo XIII and uh, Pius XI uh, before him, 
<coughs> the people might say we'd use the fistula uh, to receive the precious blood. So even in the traditional liturgy, uh, in the papal masses in St. Peter's and St. John Lateran and so on, uh, even right through the early 1900s, mm -hmm. that was standard operating procedure, let's say. Um, nowadays, that's a big question, it seems, because of the Nova Soto closing down its churches, closing down its liturgies, um, and uh, now they're concerned about sanitation. You know, they're, they're saying don't give communion in the, in the on the tongue, only in the hand because it's more sanitary, which is absolutely not true. Quite the opposite. Is, quite the opposite. The church actually was making even the administering of Holy Communion more sanitary by having it given in the Eastern Rite as it is, and in the in the in the Latin Rite, in the Roman Rite, on the tongue. Much more sanitary. Okay. But then that depended upon the priest keeping his fingers together from the moment he consecrated the host. He held his fingers together, and, but the only thing that touched those fingers, the tips of those fingers, was the sacred host. Okay, Otherwise, he didn't touch anything else. Uh, in administering Holy Communion, same way. Right? Um, that, so that is very sanitary. And... Um, I mean, nowadays you look, the, the Novus Ordo, now that it's resuming uh, practices, they have shields, they're putting it through a slot, they have prepackaged communion where you can pick it up and take it with you, you know, whatever. I mean, they've done everything but what they should do, right? If they really believed that this was the Mass, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, they would not have shut it all down anyway, okay? I mean, they're shutting it all down was a profession of unbelief, really. Uh, for those of us who understand, you know, the, the new mass and its origins, in its theology and its consequences, those three things, uh, we realize it's not Catholic anyway. It was never intended to be. Mm. But anybody who went along with the 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 the, uh, the myth and accepted it as though it was a Catholic Catholic mass intended to be a Catholic liturgy, and the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary, anybody who went along with that should certainly have been dispossessed of that misconception when they shut everything down. They themselves, the ones who created it, shut it all down. And uh, that should have told them, okay, clearly this is not, uh, this does not mean to them what the traditional Mass means to real Catholic people. Mm -hmm. Father, how, how misleading is it for the Novus Ordo to pretend like this, uh, how, how they are quote-unquote reverting to this uh, traditional practice of communion in the hand, where um, you know, you, you mentioned how, how the... Reverting to the traditional practice of communion in the hand. Set, yes. The traditional kind of, in the very right, broad sense, right, in, the, right. in the modernist sense. Right. right. But it, is that not misleading? Because, you know, you mentioned how, how the church was, was so careful. They, they cautioned the, the faithful who were receiving that they had to be, to be careful, you know, protect mm -hmm. every single particle of the host. How, there, there seems to be a world of difference between that true tradition and what you see in the Novus Ordo today, where we've, we, we've had had uh, we, we've seen videos um, of Novus Ordo priests uh, just taking handfuls uh, of the host, handing them out, and um, you know just nonchalantly, just some of them dropping on the floor, uh, countless particles. Who knows what happening mm -hmm. to them? But uh, is there not a world of difference between that, between the tradition, the true tradition well, and the clearly. church? And uh, when, when they've made the changes, when the modernists have made changes, whether it's to the way they administer communion or the wafering, uh, they always show that they don't have the traditional spirit. They may invoke some kind of ancient practice that they say the church did, you know, the 
200s or 300s or 400s or whatever, but they obviously do not have the same faith that went along with it. Um, and as you say, that manifests itself with the carelessness which which they actually administer the wafer. Mm-hmm. You know, they, I mean, they, they give it to people who, um, they, whoever gets in line puts their hand out, you know? I mean, when, when the church was, was using the practice of giving the host or, or placing the communion in the hand of the recipient, they also had the practice of the mass of the catechumen and the mass of the faithful, so that the, the, those, even those who were learning the faith and studying to become Catholics yeah. were excluded from the room, right? That's a great point. For the yeah. mass of the faithful. Yeah. So only the faithful who have been tra- trained right. and taught, uh, baptized, had been through the whole process of uh, becoming Catholic, and it was an arduous practice back then, only they would be entrusted with the Eucharist. Nowadays, I mean, they don't even limit it to the, 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 the faithful they and the catechumens, they 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 throw the doors open to just anybody, mm-hmm. even those who professedly do not have the Catholic faith at all. And it's understood they can get up, get in line, put their hands up. Mm-hmm. So it shows the dishonesty with which they they invoke the idea. Well, this was a traditional practice back in the two or three hundreds, but it's all one way. They won't invoke the traditional practices of the two or three hundreds that were very strict, that had a lot to do with penances, had a lot to do with being very careful, years of preparation to become Catholic, the importance of baptism, being excluded from the Mass, the faithful, Mass of the Faithful, if you were not a baptized Catholic. And uh, see, all of those things that they, they just disregard will have nothing to do with those. So they, they pick and choose, but that's what heresy is. I mean, heresy picks and chooses what it wants to drive to a certain point. And of course, the point of modernism is apostasy, as St. Pius X explained in Pascendi Dominici Regis. It's the, it's the synthesis of all heresies, as he called it. Mm-hmm. Well, Father, along these, these same lines, um, you mentioned the Catholic Encyclopedia article about the, the blessed, blessed sacrament, and uh, one of our viewers referenced that, and he mentions how in that article it talks about during the early persecution of the church, it was common for the faithful to receive uh, sacred hosts from the priest and take them back uh, personally to their own residences. And he asks, do you ever, uh, can you ever foresee that happening again, uh, something like that happening again, where we would take consecrated hosts from, from a, a traditional priest, uh, bring them to our own personal residences and minister them there to our own family, ourselves? Could you ever imagine that happening again? Well, uh, it seems so extreme, you know, that uh, it's hard to imagine. You know, we know that even the young, the young Tarsisius was carrying hosts on his persons to, and his person to the prisons to give to the uh, soon-to-be martyred Christians there when he himself was captured and martyred. Right? So we know it's, uh, it's a Catholic thing to do. Fast forward to the 1900s, 1920s, Father Miguel Pro. Uh, in Mexico, that he would offer Mass and uh, in private homes and leave the Blessed Sacrament there locked up in cabinets in the private homes for the patriarch of the family to administer the host to the family. Mm-hmm. That was in time of persecution even unto death. People were being martyred for the faith by the Masons and by the socialists and communists active in Mexico. 
Mexico is marked f uh, by the Soviets, by, by the Bolsheviks in Russia, uh, to be a, a communist satellite. That's what, that's what that was all about back then, in the 1920s and 30s. The persecution of the church uh, originated from that. Uh, Calles, uh, C-A-L-L-E-S, was certainly a communist socialist agent. And he was trying to um, basically follow the lead of Lenin, Stalin. Uh, there's a reason why uh, Trotsky fled to Mexico when he was trying to get away from Stalin, that he might find some refuge there, some sympathetic, sympathetic ears there, and maybe hands. Even that was not enough to protect him from Stalin. <clears throat> but in, in any case, um, it is possible, I imagine, in extreme circumstances, uh, if the circumstances become extreme enough, as they were in Mexico, it could be done. I mean, Father Miguel Pro was never chastised for that, that we know of, that I know of anyway, by his bishop, never chastised or, or uh, condemned by the church for, for that practice. Quite the contrary. He, he's been... Uh, held up an example of, uh, of strong faith in, in uh, a young priest and held up an example of courage, fortitude, pace of persecution, died a martyr himself, right? So uh, the fact that he did this, see, this is what tradition does. Here you have a, here you have a, a, a situation that ordinarily doing something like that would be very much against church practice, and would ordinarily be mortally sinful. I mean, for a priest, if, if I were to visit a family, offer a mass privately at home and leave them, a ciborium full of consecrated hosts, uh, you know, to, for the father of the family to administer what he saw necessary, uh, I would be kidding, beginning, uh, committing a grave sin, uh, sacrilege. I'd be, you know, traditionally I would be found, you, you can imagine, right? That would be considered horrible. But here you have a priest like Father, uh, such as Father Miguel Pro, who did this in times of persecution, hearkening back to the early days of the church under those, under those same circumstances of persecution. He would take his lead from them. And um, no doubt, by the way, he would have probably, and that would be interesting to investigate in the archives of the diocese, right? to see what communication he had with the bishop, his bishop at that time, with regard to that. Because I can't believe that Father Pro simply took it upon himself to do that. He must have received some kind of authorization to do that. Okay, so um, that would be interesting to see yeah, what was said there. Could it happen again? I believe it could. Because mm -hmm. I believe the persecution could be very well that great and might not be that far off. Well, you mentioned persecution, but what about uh, something like we see right now with, with some kind of pandemic happening? Could you see any kind of uh, allowance made for that situation? Uh, the, the, this situation with the pandemic, we had no. I would see no justification for it under these circumstances. Uh, <clears throat> even when they closed down the Novus Ordo, you know, throughout Italy, throughout the United States of America, I guess throughout the world, right? <clears throat> Even when they closed it down, the tr uh, traditional churches stayed open when they could, right? And um, they, they, one could make an argument that traditional Catholic priests shut down the churches when the governors of their states became menacing and threatened them. 
uh, fortunately, it didn't come to that with us, right? Uh, although there was pressure, but we uh, were willing to take the pressure for the sake of having the sacraments. So under the circumstances, I can't imagine anywhere, I mean, even Michigan and Kentucky with the governors, the Democratic governors there who are decidedly undemocratic and uh, very totalitarian <clears throat> and very, very much... Uh, you know, when you see that they want to not even allow worship when you sit in your car and you're socially distanced and you're, you're following all the other regulations, but it doesn't matter, they still want to prosecute you and persecute you for doing that and forbid you. It shows they're animated by hostility toward faith and religion. That's what it's all about. It's to stop them from worshiping, from practicing any public worship of their faith, under any circumstances whatsoever. It's very clear that that's what it's all about. Right? Um, but, uh, you know, it, I, I can't see under the circumstances that have prevailed here over the last three months in the United States of America, anything that would have gotten to the point that, would have been, that it would have gotten that extreme that one would have, that a priest would be justified in leaving hosts, consecrated hosts in a private home. Okay. Um, Rather, I think it would have been a matter of standing up and saying, no, we will not yield to this. This mm -hmm. is wrong. We're going to stand on our, not only the uh, divine rights of Christ the King, you know, uh, ordering us to do this in spite of what you say. Mm -hmm. It is necessary to obey God rather than men, right? Uh, our natural rights and our, our rights as citizens of the United States explicitly stated in the Bill of Rights. And, uh, you know, people should have stood up, I, I think. If it would have come to that in the state of Ohio, I don't think we would have had any choice but to challenge it, honestly. Curiously enough, well, I'd say too much here, but uh, an attorney on our, without my knowledge, but on our behalf, <laughs> nonetheless, um, did um, ask for records of the internal communications, um, you know, among official city officials concerning us, our church, especially during this time. And we noted that the question came up from one of the city officials as well. If the order came down from the governor to shut down the churches, do you think Father Jenkins would, uh, would comply? And the other city official said, well, no, probably not. I don't think so. <laughs> and he said, when I told him we wished he would close down the church, he just said, well, we'll pray for you. <laughs> and that's how he interpreted my answer to be, well, no, thank you, but no thank you. Um, so that was the answer, you know. No, I don't think he would comply. Well, I'd have to say, well, you got that right. <laughs> we would, I mean, we'd have no choice. We'd have no choice but to challenge that, right? right. And uh, I guess I'm, I'm surprised at how easily other traditional priests did comply uh, with just on the basis of a governor's order or making it uncomfortable enough to say no, you know, I mean, if they threatened to send law enforcement down to break, break up the, uh, the public worship, um, all the more reason why I would say, um, you know, we, we have no choice but to stand up for what we know is the Constitution of the United States of America. Right. At least that. But the rights of uh, our, we have as citizens of our United States. We, uh, to comply is to uh, 
basically accede to their disregard for the Constitution and therefore destruction of the Constitution. And I don't think we can, even as Americans, comply with that in good conscience, so to speak, um, um, let alone as Catholics. I just don't see how that works okay. myself. Okay. Um, so I'm not sure that even answers your question. I think so. <laughs> Yeah, that'll, that'll work. Father, um, there there was one other thing that I wanted to get into t tonight, and that is the uh, the question of the uh, unicum masses. We, I know we've, we've touched on this in, in the past, but there still seems to be a uh, seems to be a recurring question that we receive through our email inbox. And so I guess just in general, Father, at, at, an, at a Society of St. Pius V Mass, uh, during the canon of the Mass, is the, the name of the Pope and the, the local Novus Ordo Bishop of the Novus Ordo Diocese, are they prayed for by name in a Society of St. Pius V canon of the Mass? And if not, why not? Well, there's no such thing as a Society of St. Pius V canon of the Mass. Okay. You know that. But if, the, if the question is, do I, mm -hmm. as a priest of the Society of St. Pius V, because mm -hmm. I don't feel entitled to speak for all the priests of the Society of St. Pius V, they can speak for themselves. They will. They would, certainly. But I do not mention their names. No. Why not? I don't mention their names because I, I would be lying if I said so. I cannot say I'm one in faith. And that's what it says. I mean, despite the fact that people want to dispute that, it says what it says in Latin, unicum, and one in faith, with all true and orthodox teachers of the Roman, of the Roman Catholic faith, that you are united with them in faith. And I'm not a united with Francis in faith. I'm not. I know that for a fact. Mm. Uh, in fact, you know, somebody asked me, well, do I believe Francis is infallible? <clears throat> and I would say, well, in the sense that one is infallibly fallible, yes. It seems that whenever he speaks on any dogmatic issues, he's almost infallibly wrong. He infallibly includes something that is at least offensive to pious ears, if not suspect of heresy, or worse, <laughs> even just outright heretical. And so when he speaks, almost infallibly he comes out with something that is uh, just offensive to the Catholic faith. And that's, that's not the kind of infallibility you want in the Supreme Pontiff, right, mm -hmm. obviously. Uh, he's definitely got that charism, but it's not, it's not from heaven. So what do you say in the Mass, in the canon of the Mass? I do what, I do what uh, the Church has always prescribed, prescribed uh, during an interregnum, when there is not a valid Pope reigning, okay? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, some would say, well, you're making a judgment, therefore, uh, dogmatically for all the Catholic people in the world that Francis is not a Pope. And I would say, well, no, I, I don't presume to have that authority, okay, so I'm not making any statement of authority on the subject, binding anybody else or anyone else's conscience, but it's just that I know it's wrong to lie, and I don't have the same faith as Francis, and I can't stand there before the altar, before the tabernacle, and as I'm uh, pick, about to pick up the sacred host and consecrate the body and blood of Christ, I can't tell a lie you know, before God and man, that I'm one in faith with him. That's not true. If you don't mind, Father, what, what is the, the formula for when there is a, a, a period of time with no pope in, in between? When it simply says that he is one, one with all of the true 
teachers of the Catholic and Apostolic faith. Okay. It doesn't, just doesn't mention the names, you know. Okay. It would be a contradiction to mention the name of one, the bishop, the Novus Ordo bishop, and, and Francis, to choose between them. You know, there, I've heard of some somewhat traditional priests, if there is a thing, somewhat traditional, <laughs> how do you do that? Uh, Quasi-traditional priests who will say, well, I'll use Francis's name, but not the bishop's name, because he's, he's clearly not you know, Catholic. Or I will use uh, the bishop's name, but not Francis's name. I'm sorry, but they come together. The authority of one is united, you know, linked to the other. If there is any authority there at all, so um, you know that that is the most absurd position, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but um, the fact is, I'm just acknowledging a what I think is a patent fact that Francis's faith and my faith are not the same faith. I do not believe what he believes, and he does not believe what I believe. But I believe his historically the traditional Roman Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, he does not. Yeah. A lot of the conservative Novus Ordo people have come to realize that, face that fact, and they basically have decided, well, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. He's still the Pope, and we still have to acknowledge him as the Pope and hope we get a better, better one next time. And we, we've talked <laughs> a lot about nonsense. Not Catholic. <laughs> we, we've talked a lot about this uh, this Unicum question and the uh, in regards to the Society of Saint Pius the Tenth. Um, I, I believe we, we've said multiple times on the program that uh, the, the Society of St. Pius X priest do use Francis's name in, in the canon. but And the local bishop, too. How, how do, you, do you know that, Father? If one attends Mass, um, you know, the, the canon of the Mass, uh, that prayer would be prayed in, in silence. So we're not actually in the pew hearing, hearing the priest use that word. So how, how do we, in fact, know? Ask them. Okay. Ask they'll, them. They'll say that they do. Yeah, contact the, the authorities of the Society of St. Pius X. Ask them. Do you? And they will insist. Yes, we do. Okay. They will insist. Yes, they do. All of uh, them across the board. And, uh, I'm sure of it. And, and uh, would say it would be not would, would not be Catholic, not to do it. Yes, because that's their position. That's their official position. So, but you have to accept Francis as the true vicar of Christ on earth. He's the Pope. And this is the problem. I mean, you know, they're Catholic. How does one reconcile that with the fact that they really don't do anything he says? He, they do not obey him. They don't, you know, they say he's the Pope, but we don't, we, in practice, they do not obey anything he says. Now, that is not the Catholic concept of the papacy, <laughs> to say, yes, somebody's the Pope, and no, I don't have to do anything he tells me. Um, I was asking one of the uh, heads, one of the leaders, not the supreme leader, <laughs> but uh, um, someone in authority on the Society of St. Pius X, I was asking, well, what do any of your priests do? What has the Society of St. Pius X done uh, simply on the basis that Francis has ordered them to do it? And they did it simply because they, uh, the, simply because he ordered them to do it, not because they wanted to do it, or they said, well, this is traditional, so we can do it, but just because he ordered it. And he thought and thought and said, well, he couldn't think of a single thing. <laughs> Even though he was insisting that, yes, they obey the Pope, they don't. So um, that, that is not, again, the Catholic concept of the papacy. So I think the, the, the people who are following in the Novus Ordo, who are the conservatives who are trying to hold on to the true faith, but insist Francis is the Pope and they're trying to stay with him, are, are having to adjust their, their belief in the papacy to meet Francis, to allow for Francis. They have to, shall we say, 
expand their view of the papacy. I would say distort their view of the papacy in order to somehow allow it to cover Francis somehow. The Society of St. Pius X has to also do violence to the concept of the papacy because of their insistence that he is the Pope, and you can't even doubt it. You can question it as far as they're concerned. And because they have the idea, yes, you can have a Pope, he's the Pope, we all admit he's the Pope, we can't doubt he's the Pope, but at the same time, we are not obliged to obey him. Uh, and they would be hard-pressed to come with a single instance of anything they did to obey him. Even, even the idea of Francis extending to them, let's say, the powers of giving valid absolution in confession, right? Or having valid marriages under certain circumstances, right? The priests of the Society of St. Pius X to this day would tell you, it doesn't matter. If he hadn't given us that, we'd still continue anyway. We've been doing marriages all this time, considering them valid, with or without his approval, it doesn't matter. And that's true of John Paul II, that was true under Paul VI. Um, I mean, it, it, it's been true throughout, the, it was true under Benedict XVI. They continued doing marriages, they continued hearing confessions, without the approval, even when they were excommunicated, they continued doing it. And they will tell you to this day, if you ask them, well, did you need that authority to continue absolving people of their sins and marrying them? They would tell, no, we didn't need that. Well, what if Francis withdrew that from you? We'd, we'd continue. So again, I mean, it's perfect, perfect disregard, perfect disregard for what the Catholics have traditionally understood the papacy to be to mean. So they have to distort their view of the papacy in order to somehow uh, fit, fit Francis in there, somehow in the scheme of things. Um, and th this is what, well, traditional Catholics, fully traditional Catholics, won't do. They won't adjust the, uh, or distort the teaching of the papacy to somehow include Francis. And this is their great sin in the eyes of you know, the, the conservative Novus Ordos like Church Militant or the quasi-traditionalists like Pius X, that we will not distort the view of the papacy to somehow find a way to draw a dotted line around Francis so he somehow makes it, makes it in, you know, the Catholic understanding of the papacy. <clears throat> he doesn't, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so, but again, I mean... <laughs> I don't say that with the authority to, you know, tell the world, you know, I, well, he's not the Pope because I say so, and, I, I, you know, this, the conclusion that I've come to, it's my, it is my opinion. It's a theological opinion, um, but that doesn't mean that somebody who doesn't agree with me is, is, is not Catholic, you know. Father, what are the, what are the, how serious are the consequences of, of a priest using Francis's name in the canon of the Mass? Does that mean that uh, true traditional Catholics should avoid his masses? Should they avoid his sacraments simply because he uses Francis's name in the canon of the Mass? Well, again, you know, it comes back to a matter of integrity and honesty. I mean, if the priest at the altar says he is one in faith with Francis and all of his bishops or true Orthodox teachers of the Catholic faith, either he is or he isn't. I mean, either he is one in faith with Francis and believes what Francis teaches, you know, whole and entire, including the heresies and the other the other statements, uh, the sententiae proxima heresim, and all the rest, the, the near opinions that he expresses that are very proximate to heresy and so on. Uh, and if that's true, I mean, if a priest, even if he's saying the traditional Latin Mass, and he really does believe, follows Francis in matters of faith, 
then I, I mean, you're following someone who is at least suspect of heresy. At the very least, you can say he's suspect of heresy. I mean, for the very least, you can say about Francis. You'd be hard pressed even to say you'd get away with this that he's suspect of heresy. I mean, he's gone beyond that point. But a priest who says, professes there at the altar that he is one in faith with Francis, I think you'd have to say, is that, if that's true, if he's telling the truth, he's suspect of heresy. I shouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. But not only that, if he's telling a lie, if it's a bald-faced lie, if you asked him, Father, did you say you were one in faith with Francis? I mean, look at, look at this prayer. I mean, did, 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 you, did you mean that? You know, that you see Francis as a, a Catholic, truly a Catholic and apostolic, uh, you know, teacher of the faith and so on. And, and he said, no. And you said, well, you just said that at the altar right there in front of the tabernacle as you were about to consecrate the sacred host, you know. You invoked the Holy Ghost, uh, right? You invoked the Holy Ghost during the offertory to come down upon the sacred host. And he's the spirit of truth. And here you're telling me that you just told a bald-faced lie, right? Uh, facing the tabernacle, you know, and then in the hearing of uh, the Blessed Trinity and the angels and the saints of heaven. Um, that doesn't work for me. You know, a priest who stands at the altar and lies at a time like that, I find that to be reprehensible, and I cannot support that. But w- I think that's what they should say to her. What if the, the priest, what if, uh, I know you would, you would disagree with this, but what if the priest said that he, uh, he was not actually saying that he was one in faith with, with Francis, he was not praying with Francis, but rather he was praying for Francis? I know you would disagree with that, but, but what if the priest actually believed it, that at the canon of the Mass when he mentioned Francis's name, he was actually praying for him? Well, if he can twist that prayer to make it say that, I just wonder what else he's twisting up there. I, I just wouldn't trust him. Yeah. Okay. I just wouldn't trust him. <laughs> really, I mean, you've read the prayer in English and in Latin, Tom, and you know what it says, right? There are those who want to twist it and make it say not only what it doesn't say, not only are they denying what it does say, they're making it say quite something quite contrary to what it actually says, okay? And, uh, I mean, I do. Uh, during the canon of the Mass, I pray for Francis, and I ask that he be converted to the Catholic faith, and that he ultimately save his soul, right? I mean, I want him to save his soul. I do. But I have to pray for his conversion. I can't say I want in faith with him. Any priest who takes that prayer, the Pentecostal prayer, and, and not just interprets it, but does great violence to the meaning and interprets it to mean somewhat the opposite of what it actually means, I would say that he's gone beyond lying. He's, he's done violence to his, to his rational soul. He's done violence to his intellect. <clears throat> and if he's done that much violence to his intellect, I, I would just question what else he's twisting and turning and uh, falsifying. Because mm-hmm. I would consider that to be a falsification of the prayer. The intent of the church, too. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend for someone who, who uh, the only masses, the only sacraments available in their area are for, say, a priest who, who does this unicum mass, who says Francis' name in the canon of the mass, and that, that's the only option in their immediate area? What would you recommend? I'd recommend they go and talk to him and try to tell him that this isn't right. Try to make him understand that. If the priest is still willing to face the reality, I mean, and there, there are those who are not. They, they just can't. They, they, for some reason, they're afraid to face the facts. But... But if you, if you go and explain to them in a, in a clear way, and there's a priest who would say, um, well, let, let me object, take a look at that and try to put aside my feelings and the subject and my fears of the consequences of facing reality here, 
and acknowledge uh, the reality of what you're saying, uh, then you've, you've accomplished a great thing, if you've made a priest understand that. Um, but if you go and talk to the priest about that, which I would recommend they do, for his sake. I mean, look, they want the priest to be concerned about their soul's salvation. Why shouldn't they be concerned about the priest's salvation, too? You know? it, it should be mutual, you know, that they should be concerned about their priest's salvation as well. And uh, so I think they should, by all means. They should go and uh, either one or two or wherever they can get, you know, the people together to go and talk to them. And when they do talk to them, I think they really need to have their uh, clear vision of what they're trying to accomplish. They need to be able to explain very clearly and have information available for the priest to read. And they need to see his reaction. If the priest's reaction is, I don't want to hear this, that tells them a great deal. If the priest's reaction is to argue with them and to insist, in, if he insist contrary to reality, that it doesn't mean that we you know, are praying with the Holy Father and the bishops who are, and those who are all true Orthodox teachers of the Catholic faith. If, it doesn't, if he's insisting contrary to reality, uh, something that is opposite to that reality, then you know that you, know, you can't reason with him. How do you reason with that when someone is anti-rational, deliberately so? Right? How do you reason with that? And you, you have to just shake your head and say, well, Father, you know, we'll pray for you, certainly, you know, because um, you're just um, falsifying this prayer and the, the meaning of the church in this prayer in order to avoid the truth. And we hope that you'll be able to do so, you know, face the, face the truth and realize what's happening here. Um, I, I think if uh, the Catholic people would do that, I think I'd find that a number of good priests would say, yeah, yeah I know it's, it's been bothering me, it's been worrying me. Uh, I haven't been able to reconcile that in my mind. It seems like a contradiction that has been plaguing me for some time now. And uh, I think they will have accomplished something good. Very good. Good. Well, Father, in closing, today we have the, the feast day of St. Uh, St. Philip Neri, a very one, mm -hmm. great, great, amazing saint of, of the church. Uh, what do we have to learn from, from St. <coughs> Philip Neri, and what do we have to gain from, uh, from praying to St. Philip Neri in these times? Do you think that it would be beneficial for us to, uh, to pray to St. Philip Neri, especially on this day and in these times that we're in now? Well, I certainly do. I think any Catholic would answer that question, well, yes, of course, we believe in the intercession of the saints, right? Is that another question? <laughs> Should we go into that? Yeah. Let's do it. Okay, okay. Uh, if you're up to it. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, clearly, Tom, yes, we need to invoke the saints in heaven, and uh, <clears throat> there. this is an apologetics question, okay? It's a nagging apologetics question because there are those who consider themselves Christians who uh, believe it is not Christian to pray for the intercession of saints in heaven. Um, and um, they're, they're wrong, and I think it can be shown clearly that they are wrong. And I think it can be shown from sacred scripture. Uh, the tradition of the Catholic Church is to invoke the saints and their intercession. Uh, the Protestants, of course, following Luther and others like him, the principle that Scripture alone 
is the guide of faith and the, the standard of faith. So in order for them to understand the church, Catholic Church's tradition, uh, the Catholic Church needs to appeal to sacred scripture and show them where in sacred scripture. And, and in the first place, well, the church has to show them that it doesn't contradict scripture, okay? Because there are Protestants who would say, well, what about this passage from scripture? What about that passage from scripture? What about the passage from sacred scripture? That Christ is the mediator between God and man. We have a mediator now, even in heaven, right? And so they draw the conclusion from that that no other mediation is possible. There's only one mediator behind between God and man. And, uh, of course, that can get a, a little, uh, not, not complicated, but to respond to it, you can respond to it uh, very, very convincingly from sacred scripture, but it takes a little bit of, of uh, time and effort. Um, and a lot of people are not willing to put that through. They just want you to quote one, one phrase from scripture, like a soundbite from scripture, and say this or that. And that's what they're doing. They're quoting a soundbite mm -hmm. and saying, there you are. That's all the room, you know? But um, first of all, I would just, uh, you know, go through a series of points, okay, that I would ask somebody to think about. First of all, um, did the, well, I would ask them the question, did the early Christians pray for each other? And the answer is yes. Can it be proven from sacred scripture that the early Christians prayed for each other? And the answer is yes. And I think... Uh, Luther, Bellington, uh, Calvin, and the rest would all uh, really agree, yes, the early Christians did pray for each other. Clearly, clearly, you know. And, uh, I mean, we can understand that from the letters of St. Paul, from the epistles of St. Paul alone, you know, the early Christians prayed for each other. And uh, so why would there be a contradiction between souls on earth able to pray for each other and when you, when you pray for someone, is that not a form of interceding for them? When you are beseeching God for mercy for them or so on, um, is that not a form of intercession? Are you not taking the place of Christ then, in a sense, if you say that that's impossible for anybody but Christ to do? Uh, isn't, that, isn't prayer itself a kind of intercession? When we, one of us, is praying for another, I mean, that's the very definition, right? Pray for each other. They say, yeah, but you're praying for dead. You're praying to dead people. And we're, say, we're praying to saints. I mean, St. Paul, even in his epistles, addresses the saints who are in Galatia, the saints who are in Ephesus, and so on. He had to refer the holy souls there. But we're referring to souls who died in the, in the, in the grace of God with love for God, faith, hope, and charity. As St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, these are holy souls who died in the faith and hope and charity, Christ. And, uh, you know, what St. Paul says above them then, of them, is splendid, beautiful. You know, the eye hath not seen, nor hath the ear heard, nor hath it entered into the mind of man, what things God has prepared, prepared for those who love him. And it's to these very people, uh, now saints in heaven, that we are appealing. Now, Protestants often misunderstand that, too. And it's often not explained to them very well, I admit that. <coughs> but we know that, and I've spoken about this before, there are four ends or purposes in prayer. Okay? The first is adoration. Do Catholics offer prayers of adoration to saints? No, ever, never. <clears throat> the prayer of adoration is directed to God alone. 
the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, the Son incarnate, Jesus Christ, our Lord. <clears throat> the prayer of adoration is directed only to them. The Catholic Church would condemn as blasphemous and as idolatrous to offer a prayer of adoration to any anyone else than the divine being of God and the three divine persons of God. So never would that prayer be directed to any saint or angel or any creature anywhere. Well, the second purpose of prayer, you might say, is, is reparation, contrition. And all that is is acknowledging the times we failed to, to adore God. We, re, we denied that adoration to God by our sins. And we apologize to God for that. <clears throat> now, would we pray a prayer of contrition to a saint, saying, I sinned against you, St. Philip Neri? No. It wouldn't even enter a Catholic's mind to offer a prayer like that. Because we're, we're sinning against God. And we can apologize, let's say, if, if, to others, human beings, you know, but that's not the same as contrition uh, or uh, re making reparation for sin. That is made to God. So those two ends of prayer, the purposes of prayer, you would never direct, no Catholic would ever direct to anyone other than God himself. What about thanksgiving? A thank, thanksgiving for blessings. That's the third purpose of prayer. Would Catholics offer prayers of thanksgiving to saints, direct prayers of thanksgiving to saints? Only insofar as they thought the saint had assisted them, but they know that blessings come from God. They know the saints cannot do things, uh, work miracles for them. That that has to come from God Himself. So all prayers of thanksgiving really are directed to God Himself, who from whom all blessings do flow. Right? All good and perfect gifts come down from the Father of Lights, the Epistle of Saint James. Well, then there's finally the last of the purposes of prayer is supplication. And that is asking God for mercy and blessing, asking him for blessings. So in thanksgiving, we thank for the blessings already, already received. Supplication, we ask him to continue those blessings, even to magnify them or to multiply them. Could a Catholic direct a prayer, a prayer for that purpose to a saint? Well, insofar as this goes, yes. <clears throat> uh, a saint is in heaven and has perfect love for God. That's the very meaning of what it is to be a saint in heaven. I mean, the first great commandment, thou shalt Lord, love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, thy whole mind, thy whole soul, thy whole strength. The saints in heaven do that. They, they live that first great commandment. Love thy neighbor as thyself, or even as our Lord said at the Last Supper, love one another as I have loved you. The saints in heaven do that. There are very few on earth who do that. And nobody I know who who would do that, would claim to do that. They'd be too humble to do it, right? Nobody's going around saying, yes, I love God perfectly, I'm a saint. Well, that's the first indication that they're not, okay? <laughs> so nobody on earth would claim to do that who really was a saint. But the saints in heaven do that continually. That's, that's their prayer of adoration to God and contrition for the sins of the world and their own and thanksgiving and supplication. They're constantly making supplication to God. Uh, they're perfectly united with our Lord in his thoughts and his love for the Father. And uh, from the Blessed Mother all the way down through all the saints, you know, all the angels, that's what they do in heaven. They have perfect love for God. And it, it kind of brings to mind what our Lord tells us during this time of year. Our Lord in the Gospel tells, tells the apostles at the Last Supper, uh, henceforth, from now on, you will ask the Father in my name. 
and he will grant it to you. I tell you not that I will ask the Father for you. That's what he says. Our Lord says it. I say I will not that I will ask the Father for you, but the Father himself loveth you. And our Lord says the reason why. He says, because you have loved me. Now, the implication of those words is very profound, really, you know, that our Lord says, you will ask the Father in my name, and the Father will grant it to you. And I'm saying, I'm not going, not that I am asking the Father for you, but he's the one mediator between my God and man, and this is what he's telling his apostles at the Last Supper. But the Father himself loveth you. The key is because you have loved me. Well, if you take that literally, what our Lord says, and you <clears throat> then look at his saints in heaven who love him with all their loving power of loving. And the Father loves them. And he says, if you ask the Father anything in my name, because the Father loves you because you've loved me. Not that I will ask for you, but you ask. Right? What does that say? It says you have to ask. <clears throat> now, knowing this, knowing this, one might say, Okay, so why would I ask saints if here on earth I love Jesus Christ, I love his Son, and the Father loves me? So maybe our Lord Jesus Christ is telling me at the Last Supper that the Father loves me, <clears throat> and I can go straight to the Father, <clears throat> and I don't need Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to ask for me. I now have access, right, to ask God the Father myself so all the more reason, why would I want to ask saints, you know? That's what they say. But I would say the answer to that question lies in the very point that our Lord makes. <clears throat> the Father himself loveth you because you have loved me. And we realize here on earth that our love for our Lord is far from perfect. If it were, we wouldn't sin. We wouldn't even consider the possibility of sinning if our love for our Lord was perfect. But the love of the saints in heaven is perfect. If that is what draws the love of the Father to a soul, <clears throat> if that love for our Lord <clears throat> is what makes the Father love us, that is perfectly true of the saints in heaven who love him perfectly. It is not perfectly true of us because we do not love perfectly. <clears throat> we don't love our Lord with all of our powers of loving. That's the problem. That's why we sin, <laughs> see. But the saints in heaven don't sin. Their love is complete, perfect, perfectly ordered entirely toward God. This is just one, one argument, just one statement of our Lord that implies in the direction of, yes, ask the saints. Their love for God is perfect. They have an audience. They're a part of the heavenly court right now. They know us. This is another thing, you know, the, uh, those who have followed Luther and, and others in, in his heresy, those who followed him into Protestantism, have a very murky concept of what comes next, a very muddled concept of what heaven is like. But the Catholic Church has a very, very clear idea of what heaven is like. Not that she can portray it, even so the human imagination can can kind of uh, conjure that up. No, 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 not at all. But dogmatically speaking, truth, just on the level of truth, the church herself, following what our Lord himself has said, 
<clears throat> what St. Paul has told us, that in heaven the soul has the vision of God. Then I shall know, then I shall see even as I see. Then I shall know even as I am known. St. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So here we see in a dark manner, you know, as though through a glass, you know. But there we will see face to face. That's what St. Paul says. And there our love will be complete. So our knowledge will be clear and we'll see God. We shall see him as he is. Which we cannot do here. Right? St. 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 Paul, St. Peter said, no man has seen God, right? Lived, anyway, <laughs> to tell about it. So, um, we're talking about those who see God, and God is spirit, we know that. And in the, God is mind, God is intellect, God is will, God is everything he is. I and mean, all the powers in God are God. So in the divine intellect, we have his truth. In the divine will, we have what he loves. We have his creation. I mean, we see the angels not only as they are standing in themselves, but now we see them as they are in the mind of God. We see each other in heaven, not as we are here on earth. I mean, like when we talk about the process of sight, as you're looking at me and I'm looking at you, there's a process of sight that has to do with, you know, electromagnetic waves and all the rest, uh, chemical reactions, and it's a very it's a process that has to go into the brain and register in some way. And, um, you know, people's sight varies. <laughs> some people don't have it at all, right? Uh, others, uh, as they get older, like me, you know, it's very not too sure. But in heaven, that would be perfect sight. There won't be needing an, an optic nerve. You won't need electromagnetic, you know, waves or energy <clears throat> to see. You'll see God as he is directly, immediately. And that's the wonderful thing. That's called the beatific vision. And the Catholic Church understands this, that not only will we see God, but we'll see in the mind of God his creation. And that is that the saints in heaven, St. Philip Neri, he sees you and me as we are right now in the mind of God. That's what he sees. He doesn't need all this. He doesn't need this light or anything. We don't have to generate electromagnetic waves in a certain spectrum to make ourselves visible to him any more than we have to make ourselves visible to God that way. God knows. He sees. The angels, your own guardian angel, sees your soul first and sees your body insofar as your body is united with your soul. That's the, exactly the opposite way we see each other. <clears throat> we see the body, what we can get, you know, reflected off the body. <clears throat> and then we try to discern the soul, but try to figure out, well, who is this person really, you know, and we try to get an estimation of their individual. But we don't see the soul unless God shows it to us. But God can because he sees it perfectly. When the saints in heaven see God. They see God's creation. That's why at any given moment I can invoke a saint like St. Philip Neri and say, St. Philip Neri, pray for me. Pray for Tom. Right? Intercession. <laughs> Mediation. I can do that. He knows. He's, he knows in the mind of God. Uh, what is referring to him, to God, to you and me, out of love for God. I'm directing that prayer out of love for God. He's all about that right now. Right? He's all about that. He can respond to that. And uh, in a way that only a saint can. But he can respond to that be with a, a, the, because of the Father's love for him. And the Father loves him because of the love he has for Jesus Christ, which is perfect. 
So it comes down to this, okay? Here I am on this earth, and our Lord has told the apostles, this is what I want you to do, okay? Ask the Father. Father loves you. I will not ask you for, for you on your behalf. You ask because the Father knows you love me. That means the Father loves you too, okay? So here I am, Father Jenkins here. I'm saying, I am going to invoke the Father. I am going to ask God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, right? I'm going to ask the incarnate Son of God, I'm going to appeal to them all um, <clears throat> for help, for blessings, right? Uh, even as our Lord has admonished me to do so, to go directly to the Father and ask. And if you look in the prayers of the Mass, the traditional Mass, 90% of those prayers are directed to the Father. The orations of the Mass, look at the traditional Mass. <laughs> Some of them are invoked on the Feast of our Lord, are directed to him as the Son of God, right? Some, during time of Pentecost, directed to the Holy Ghost. But all three persons are mentioned in every prayer in the doxology, okay? All three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, in every oration of every Mass, the traditional traditional rite of Mass, invoke the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, okay? And uh, so... The fact that I can ask saints also to unite with me in my prayer, that's what the communion of saints is all about, you know, people uniting in prayer. The fact that I can ask the saints in heaven to unite with me in prayer when they know me and love me more than anybody on earth could do because of their perfect love for God. They love me and God right now. Um, that is not a substitute for my praying. In other words, I can't say, well, I'm not going to go to the Father. I'm going to ask all the, all the saints to go to the Father for me. That's not what our Lord said. But I, I can go to the Father, and I have access to the Father because of my love for our Lord. There's nothing in there that would prevent me also in going to the Father myself and asking for God's blessing to ask the saints also to unite with me in that request. They love to do that. That's They want us to join them there. They want us to be saved and join them in the communion of saints. So uh, I, I pity those who don't see that there's no contradiction there, but actually it fits perfectly with what our Lord actually told his apostles at the Last Supper and what the apostles themselves took going forward then in uh, <clears throat> applying what our Lord had taught them during the three years of his public life in those 40 days after his resurrection, before the ascension, um, that this really is the faith. This is the, the Christian faith, the faith of Christ. <clears throat> so in any case, um, I've gone on a little longer than I intended, probably no longer than you expected, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm glad you raised the question because it is a topical question and it is troubling some good people. I'd like people to write in and whatever has not been addressed they still have objections, I'd like them to make them clear. Sure. Because as I say, uh, you know, this is only a part of it, an answer to that very question. Mm -hmm. But I think it's an important part. Yeah, definitely. Well, Father, I think we can uh, end with that. We got through a lot tonight, so uh, thank you. Appreciate sure. it. You did, Tom. Yep. Thank you. No problem. Thanks God to all of our... God bless you and all of our watchers. Yeah, definitely. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.